Welcome to Origin Stories. My guest this week is Zach De Silva. Um, Zach is an award-winning business coach, consultant, and strategist based in Auckland. In simple terms, I suppose you could say Zach makes businesses better. His company, Business Changing, works with some of New Zealand's leading companies, and each year, hundreds of owners and founders and senior managers attend Business Changing planning and strategy workshops. Before Zach started Business Changing in 2011, I think it was, he was the managing director of Barker's Menswear. And before that, he was the finance guy behind House of Travel and Flight Centre. I hope I've done you justice there, Zach. Um, Lovely to have you on the show. How are you doing? Doing well. Thanks, Robert. You know, you did me justice. I really appreciate it. It's been um, been looking forward to having a chat to you. So I'm very excited about where our conversation goes. Yeah, it's taken a few months to get you on the show because I know you're just flat tack and have been for the last 18 months or a couple of, you know, two years, really. And, and before that, even as well. But I suppose particularly the last 18 months, you've been really, really busy helping businesses figure out how to to survive, I suppose, and to thrive in this this new reality we're all facing. How, how are you holding up with the, with, with the busyness of it all? Holding up relatively well. I think it, it helps when you love what you do, mm. you know, when you're concerned about what you do. And I guess for me, my personal purpose and my business's purpose as well is to help other people be as successful as they can and to live the, the best life that they can. And I do it from a business, guys. Like I'm not a life coach, but I focus on, you know, how to help improve a business, which ultimately either means, you know, or might mean both, but it either means more profit or else it means that the owner lives a happier life because they're less stressed and all that sort of stuff. And preferably, it's a mixture of both. Our team has grown because we have got particularly busy. I think a lot of business coaches and advisors have actually had a really busy 18 months. I think what I'm seeing with my clients, so as you said, we work with you know hundreds of companies each year and we have um, a really a quite a large stable of regular clients as well that we catch up with very regularly. And the vast majority of them are actually doing pretty well. Mm. Um, of course, you know, I do have some clients who are in industries that are struggling for all of the obvious reasons, you know, name it, you know, travel, meaning outbound travel, you know, tourism, education agents, retail and hospo, especially hospo have been affected big time by COVID. So there's been some, I guess, some some of my clients have had some major stress. Um, you know, I try my best to support, I guess, the ones that are growing really fast, how do they handle the growth and the ones that actually have massive impact from COVID, how can they handle the stress of literally almost having their income shut off? And I guess what I'm seeing, uh, Robert, is you know mental health and your own well-being is just becoming more and more important. And I think to answer your question, you know, how am I handling being so busy? I'm a lot more cognizant myself of not not that I've necessarily had mental health issues per se, but I certainly get stressed. Mm. And I guess I'm a lot more aware of I actually need to have a break sometimes as well. So you know, the long weekend we just had, I spent. My wife, Sip, and I, we watched 29 episodes of Yellowstone, some random program on Neon, yeah. and probably watched about 22 hours. So it was pretty much just, you know, total binging, which was fantastic. Yeah. And you just forget about business and you really chill. Yeah. So I think, you know, business owners are really learning through the COVID stress that, man, you've got to look after yourself. And I think that's one positive output of or outcome from these times is that I think people are going to look after themselves, hopefully, a bit better than maybe they did, realizing that they can't be Superman or Superwoman. Given your your background, I suppose, and your history in the in the travel industry with with the flight center and and um, I travel, you must be relieved you're not in that in that industry at the moment. I mean, what crystal ball gazing, Zach? How how do you see the, the the future panning out for for businesses like tourism, like like travel? Yeah, I guess you know I'm, I'm going to say what everyone else already knows, so I'm not you know I'm not like a sage on this at all, but mm. I guess most pundits around the world think that by 2024, 2025. It'll probably be, you know, close to pre-COVID normal. 
mm. whatever that means, you know, and maybe not fully there. But I certainly, you know, short term, you know, some of these industries, it's just it's just very challenging. And as we all know, COVID is a, mo- uh, a moving beast. And I don't know about you, Robert, but um, personally, I used to travel a decent amount, mainly short haul, you know, just Fiji, Australia, whatever. Personally, I don't actually have much interest to actually travel at the moment, which is, yeah, yeah. I reckon by next year, I probably will. So I think, um, yeah, if, if, I think 2024 will be fine for travel agents, probably. Again, I don't know anything. I'm not a scientist, sure. not a, whatever. But um, but I think, you know, there's still another 12 or 18 months of really interesting times. Yeah. And as yeah. I say, I've got a few of those clients and I really wish them the best and I try my best to help them. Yeah. But along with other people like, you know, education agents bringing students in or whatever, we're at the whim of the borders mm-hmm. and we're at the whim of all of that stuff related to COVID. So it's it's really frustrating when you have a business that you can't control yourself because the reason you go into business is because you want to control your own destiny well when you have this massive curveball that hardly any of us ever expected it's just so soul destroying and challenging actually not being able to control your destiny because that's the thing about business say you your business is successful if you make it successful it's a flop or a failure if you don't well this is taken away from your own you know um ability to control what's happening so I just yeah, you know, really feel I try my best to support my clients who are in such a situation. I want to go back to obviously your decision to to set up business changing. I'm guessing was was a large factor of that it was down to controlling your own destiny. But I want to go back and I suppose trace the journey to to business changing. Um, get a sense of how you ended up where you are now. First of all, where did you grow up? Okay, so home was primarily Auckland, but I was born in Sydney, Australia. So when I was younger, I used to say to people, my parents were in the wrong place at the wrong time <laughs> I have Aussie friends and Aussie partners now so I, I mean I've always loved Australia but yeah effectively lived 10 months in Sydney grew up in Mount Roskill in Auckland so just a pretty you know normal kind of upbringing but I guess I always tried my best at school I was one of those guys who was relatively good at sport I was yeah. never going to make a good team but at the same time I would always try my best scholastically or academically but without without trying to have the appearance of being a geek but um, I would always try my best and I think that's underpinned my life of trying to be the best. But what's been interesting is I found that I can be the best in business. I mean, when I say be the best, I can be happy with my effort in business. But I have to say that my personal life, meaning, you know, me as a father, me as a husband, me as a friend, it's definitely lacking compared like my business life is here. My personal life, it's interesting. I'm not able to actually emulate, let's arguably say I know what I'm doing in business personal life's been a very interesting one a lot my personal life's totally good yeah but I actually in the past have prioritized business to my detriment so I'm trying my best now to kind of right the ship there and it's interesting um I've even started trying to score myself in a few habits and one of them is like you know did I try my best to be a great husband did I try my best to be a good dad or a great dad and it's just interesting how my scores in business are always still higher than my personal life. Well, that's the challenges we all face, isn't it? It's, you know, juggling all those different those different balls, the, you know, the social, the business, the financial, the health and well-being, the relationships. It's, it's, it's a juggling act, really. And, and you just got to try and keep as many balls in the air as you can, right? When did you first become aware of, I suppose, business as a, as a concept? Did, you, did, you, did your parents run their own business or what was your first exposure to the business world at? Yeah, so I guess um, my first exposure was probably about 1981. I think my dad ended up having his own business. He had had a relatively good job. He was like a salesperson and he was able to become, let's call it like a fruit and veggie broker. So he was like buying for supermarkets, buying for fruit shops, buying for chip companies 
and he ended up when I say doing well in business like this is um in a very you know middle class way but you know compared to what where he was earning he earned a lot more money in 1981 when he went to Fiji on business he bought me my first pair of Adidas shoes so I progressed out of barter bullets into Adidas shoes and what I'm trying to say is very middle class but I guess I was aware that wow my dad having his own business actually did impact our life from a financial slash lifestyle perspective and I was I mean I was actually quite across his sales figures he would kind of share with me from memory and this wasn't he wasn't trying to be arrogant but I'd always ask him well how'd you go this week you know how much did you make or something and I can't exactly remember I sort of remember the figures but they were 1980s money yeah but I was actually very across very aware of the fact he was growing in business and that kind of got me I was like oh wow well done dad that's really cool and I was quite proud of him so that's probably the first time. And then I ended up being one of those kids who ended up being better at commerce subjects than science subjects. I was always relatively not too bad at maths. And I was quite good at mainly accounting. So I think, and again, I'm not trying to say that accountants are business people, meaning most accountants are just are accountants and hey, that's cool, but yeah. they're not actually running their own business. But And that was in the mid 80s. So I guess, yeah, as I say, my dad was in business, became aware of business, and then just purely by doing accounting, which ultimately led on to me doing a Bachelor of Commerce at BCom at Auckland University, I became a lot more aware of, let's say, again, money, meaning making a profit or loss, which actually still is only a very small part of business, but of course, a very important part if you want to have a sustainable business. So I think, yeah, that that was the early days. I, I remember as well that we had a very funny business as a kid, my dad doing the fruit and veggies. Um, my brother and I, we set up a veggie run, fruit and veggie run around the neighborhood. And it was the most amazing business for unrealistic reasons, because let's say we had 10 customers, 10 families from around the neighborhood within, I don't know, 300 meters. We'd, we'd deliver their fruit and veggies every week. And these were amazing fruit and veggies because they would be fresh on the day from the markets, mm. not supermarkets for a few days or fruit shops. These were really fresh. We would sell them at whatever the price was. It was probably lower than retail. And the funny thing was, that my dad would actually, and my mum must have been across being happy with this too, they would supply the fruit and veggies to my brother and I for free. So we made 100% gross profit. So we just made all this, when I say all this money, you know, 20, 30 bucks a week, whatever it was in the day, I can't remember. Yeah, I realised eventually that wasn't realistic in terms of how you run a business, but that was quite cool. And then you went to uni to study accounting and finance. Did you go into university with a master plan? Yeah, so my master plan when I actually went to university was to literally become an accountant. That was it was nothing to do, not to be a business person. I mean, yeah, as I say, accountants are have aspects of being a business person, sure. but a lot more to being a business person than account than accounting. Yeah. But I actually, my best friend, who's still one of my best mates now, his brother, who was probably let's say five or six six years older than us, he got a job at EY as an Ernst and Young as an auditor, and in the mid to late eighties. There was the 87 share market crash, and it was almost like a GFC or a COVID-type moment. And I was graduating from school in 88. So you can imagine that the economy was pretty crap. There weren't many jobs. But I just remember thinking, if you're going if, if you're an accountant, you're going to get a job. So I went into university purely from the angle of, I have to get a job. So I was never going to have my own business, never going to be an entrepreneur. But I went there to get a job at a big four business. And I got my first job at Deloitte, as an example, as an auditor. And how long did you spend with Deloitte? I was the first in my year to leave. You're meant to do at least three years to get your chartered accounting recognition. Yeah. I left after two and a half years. I was really frustrated. So A, I was an auditor, which is fine, but it, but I more was frustrated that I would go in and out of companies every two or three weeks and I can never actually add value. It was just a process. And and I wanted to get committed to one company because I was always about trying to be my best. But I got frustrated because 
I couldn't just dedicate myself to one client to make their business better, whatever that meant. So I just wanted to get a job actually where I could just work on one client, one business, should I say, the whole time. And that's what I did. That's when I first got into travel, ended up going into what today is called Hello World. So I actually did all three travel companies as in Hello World Flight Center and House of Travel as in the three main ones. Yeah. That was my first job. And I started as the corporate accountant, ended up being the finance manager of one of their subsidiaries in corporate travel. And I think I was there maybe... I think it might have only been 18 months actually, but I but I liked that a lot more because I could just be dedicated to a certain company and I felt I could start to, I guess, understand the business world a little bit more. And I guess in an early age, probably at 23 years old, I was, I was the finance manager, I was, I was on the management team. Man, I had a lot to learn in leadership, but it was just interesting as well being, the when I say the junior, I was the youngest person on the management team probably by a few years. And it was just interesting you know, at a relatively young age, being on the management team of a company, we might have had, you know, I don't know, 40 or 50 people. So it was a reasonable size company. And um, I guess it just showed me, yeah, I just love business and I love people. I love culture. I love sales growth. I love gross profit. I love profit. I love challenges, all that sort of stuff. And then the, it all carried on from there. So how many years did you spend in total in the in the travel industry, Zach? I was in travel from 94 through to 2006. Yeah. Uh, my formative years, I would say, were Flight Center. I was at Flight yeah. Center for about eight or nine years and as most people would know, Flight Center is a bit of a global phenomenon. Flight Center did particularly well. And I joined in 95 and we listed on the stock exchange later that year. And, and for me, I worked with a guy called Chris Grieve, who has pretty much been my main, I'd say he's my main mentor from a business perspective. We still get on now and we catch up occasionally and you know keep in contact. Flight Center was great because you could make quick decisions. It was very autonomous. Like I worked out in New Zealand for most of the time whilst we were owned by the Australian company. Chris owned a decent amount of the New Zealand company. So we he was just very autonomous. And I guess ultimately I became the two IC with him. And um we were just we we just formed a very good team and we, you know, grew the profits immensely, um, like, you know, tenfold or maybe even twelvefold over several years. Mm. And it's because yeah, I guess it showed as well when you when you have a good team and you have respective strengths, because of course not everyone's good at everything. So if you get a good team that covers all your weaknesses, and that's I think what the Flight Centre New Zealand team was able to do. And then, um, yeah, ultimately, I ended up going to Flight Centre in Australia at the head office in Brisbane. I became the CFO over there. Um, a lot of fun. I had about, I don't know, I can't remember the number, but I had about 250 or 300 accountants in my team. And that was at like about 29 years old. So I was quite young and I had a lot to learn, but it was a very good challenge for my leadership. And um, I think what that taught me was for me to be successful, I've really got to, have passion and what I meant by that is I had passion for flight center but I was a Kiwi and living in Australia in Drapilli shopping mall or uh, whatever whatever the other shopping malls are called you know Bondi yeah. Junction whatever they didn't mean anything to me emotionally I was connected to you know Rickerton Mall the St. Luke's to me they meant something yeah. and all these flight center shops in Australia I just couldn't get my head around it emotionally so um, ultimately, actually, for family reasons, we did come back. You know, within a within a couple, two or three years, I think, or a couple of years, yeah. came back to Flight Center NZ, and I ended up launching um, FCM Travel, which is Flight Center's corporate Flight Center's corporate travel arm. Yeah. And I had a very small shareholding in that, and that was, you know, that went really well. But I was effectively, let's say, the GM, and we grew from zero to about seventy-five million in revenue, which was, you know, pretty good. And I had about a hundred staff, and that showed me my lesson there was that. I looked good as the general manager, whatever my title was, and maybe I did it not not a bad job, but actually it was my team who was incredibly good. Flight Center ended up, well, I think when I was the CFO, we were worth like three or four billion dollars on the stock exchange. It was a you know pretty massive company. Yeah. Whilst I might have been called the CFO, I was very much the commercial 
officer, whatever you want to say. Like my approach to accounting and finance was always about trying to grow profit. So no offense to cost, but to me, cost control was like 5% of the equation. So I was I was one of those re- I was one of those income focused accountants or CFOs. Gross profit is the most important thing because that's obviously the money left over on the sale. Well, that's what's actually going to ultimately make your profit, along with hopefully cost being in control. What was your first big crisis, um, Zach, either professionally or, or personally? Yeah, I think I mean, like everyone, I had my ups and downs. You know, mm. like had plenty of personal problems. You know, whatever they might be, you 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 name the normal personal problems, and yeah. I had them. But I think my biggest personal challenge was, um, so eventually in the mid 2000s or even early 2000s, I left Flight Center and I went to House of Travel, one of the main competitors, and um, they were very good to me. So I was looking to make a change and um, ended up at House of Travel. And it was actually quite lucky that I did because they treated me incredibly well when something really bad was happening in my life. So at that time, unluckily on Christmas Eve, 2003 2003 from memory um my wife got my wife at the time her name was Fleur my wife today is called Sip and um she's a very great lady key part of my business and key part of my life but um at the time Fleur my wife she got breast cancer so that was really challenging and very quickly after that it became quite clear that I probably needed to change company because I could see the support that I was going to need with my wife having cancer right and a long story short i went to house to travel who treated me as i say incredibly well yeah so that was a major crisis for obvious reasons yeah and they treated me very fairly i was meant to move to christchurch to live because that was where the job was based i stayed in auckland i think i spent two days a week in christchurch right. and ultimately um tragically and and obviously very unluckily my wife did pass away in may 2006 so about two and a half years after she initially breast cancer she passed away it came back a few times and then we thought we'd beaten it then it then it came back and unluckily spread around the body and you know the rest is history but when that happened my kids at the time were like when I say my kids our kids were five six and twelve and imagine a mother's a pretty important part to the whole family nucleus and um I was I was just so lucky at the time to be working for House of Travel because the guy who owns it, Chris Paulson, who's another really nice guy, just like Chris Grieve and from Flight Center, he was very fair to me. And I think, I'm guessing, but I think they paid me for like eight to 10 weeks. Right. I, was only, I was a pretty senior person in the exec team, et cetera, as the commercial director. And they paid me whatever my wage might have been at the time for a long time when I wasn't actually working, obviously, towards the end of Flu's life and then you know for mm-hmm. several weeks after. So I feel very indebted to House of Travel and to Chris Paulson for treating me so fairly because at the time I certainly needed the money and I would have been absolutely stuffed if I, you know, wasn't earning money. So what happened after that was I actually wanted to get out of travel. I'd been in travel by then, I don't know, what is it, 12 years, whatever it was. Yeah. And I decided that I just needed a whole new change of industry, funnily enough. Um, Chris Grieve, who was my old boss at Flight Center, who, as I say, has been my main mentor, he approached me and he said, hey, Zach, something along the lines of, I've always believed in you, had love to go into business with you. And I was like, whoa, that's pretty amazing because, you know, he was, um, he's, he's done well for himself. And um, so it actually opened up some opportunities that would not have opened up for me otherwise. So we were able to together to buy Barker's men's clothing in 2006. So for me, that was another incredibly formative time, pretty much just like my Flight Center days, so just, just interrupt, where was Barker's at at that time that they were selling? What, what, what kind of state were they in? To tell the truth, we bought a bit of a lemon of a business. 
it, it, we we did due diligence, but unluckily the due diligence that we had had other people do didn't pick up all that should have been picked up. I, I had a job at the time. I'll take responsibility, as I'm sure Chris will, but we, we we probably weren't as close to it as we were. We just relied on other people, which is the wrong thing. Barker's was a really interesting brand. So when I was at university in the late 80s, early 90s, and I appreciate, Robert, you probably weren't here at the time, but Barker's mm. was a really, really cool brand. Mm. And I used to want to wear Barker's. And if you wore Barker's, you know, I was very superficial back then, like most young people. <laughs> and if you wore Barker's, you were cool. However, the, the, the style of Barker's changed. The, the clothes that they were doing weren't appealing to myself personally. In my view, Barker's had actually didn't even exist because I was more what you call a high street shopper, didn't really go to shopping malls or whatever. And when I saw that Barker's was on the market in 2006, because Chris and I agreed, Chris Grieve and I agreed that whatever business we bought, I had to be really passionate about because it was going to be my job to run it. Chris was going to be the chairman. He lived in Spain at the time, but I was, you know, it was my baby, so to speak. And when I saw Barker's was on the market, I was like, wow, I didn't even know it still existed. But I remember thinking like, man, Barker's used to be so cool when I was young. Mm. Surely we can get involved and make it really mass market cool again and hopefully make it go really well. So it wasn't in a great state. Um, the culture wasn't particularly good. With hindsight, the business wasn't doing, doing particularly well. We overpaid for it, as you do, with hindsight, with our average due diligence. But that was that was the start of an, another formative part of my career where, I guess, it was the first company. I mean, I'd, I'd run FCM Travel. I'd run a big finance team of a few hundred people, whatever. Yeah. But this was all on my shoulders, subject to being supported by Chris from Spain. So for me, it was a really big opportunity to both step up, do some good things, make some major stuff ups, learn some great lessons. Yeah. Um, and get some great life experience. And I think the biggest lesson for me with Barker's was I might have been a good CFO in travel, but I'd never dealt with a company that had stock, as in physical stock. In travel, you're just cash rich in theory. If your business is good, you've got lots of cash because people prepay, you've got your margin, there's always money there. And Barker's, you know, you're producing, say, six months before the season or three months before the season. You're paying millions of dollars up front. Whilst I was a CFO, very embarrassing. That It took me a while to really get my head around um, the whole impact of stock and cash. And ultimately, I became a guru, which I've carried through to today, where I really understand stock and cash. But at the time, yeah. just never had to worry about cash. So for me, you know, having to, having to go to Chris and say, hey, I need a million or two million dollars short really quick because I just kind of <laughs> run out of money you know sooner than later because we just over ordered stock or whatever yeah it was I mean a embarrassing but b a great learning where cash flow is so important right. embarrassing because I was a really good CFO in theory but just at the time for the first you know year or two year year, year or so didn't worry much about cash didn't I, we didn't have when I realized the error of my ways of poor control um I fix that and the other just one more thing on that Robert why we ended up with way too much stock let's say one or two billion bucks whatever the figure might have been was I remember when I started at Barker's I went to the guy who's a really nice guy who was looking after stock and all that sort of stuff ordering and I said to him hey are you happy with how we're doing stock and how we're ordering for each season he said oh, I'm really happy I've been doing it for like 15 years yeah I'm really happy and I just actually believed the guy he's a nice guy and he was great but I just believed him and didn't even question him another great lesson like just question a bit more. But as I say, I was, I was new to being a managing director of a massive, you know, we had about 250 staff. So that was a major stuff up on my part where I just didn't ask enough questions about, I needed to dig deeper. Like, why are we ordering so much stock or so little or this? And so as I say, ultimately I realized error of my ways. And, um, but when I was at Barker's, I had a few other aims and one of them, I had, I had two other main aims, sorry, three aims. One was to commercially do not too bad. Well, I have to say, as I say, we overpaid. 
and the GFC hit. So commercially could have done a lot better than how it went, but hey, that's life. But um, I also had another aim, which was to win the All Blacks. I love rugby. I'm at the time rod and gun. They were dressing the All Blacks, but I remember ringing Steve Chu probably in 2007. I said, oh, hi, I'm Zach from Barkers. And he's probably like, who the hell are you? I said, I really want to dress the All Blacks. What do I have to do? And ultimately we ended up winning the All Blacks. Wow. I think it was in 2008. And Barkers still has the All Blacks now, like 13 years, 14 years, whatever later. How, how do you go about winning? How did you go about winning? It was persistence. Was it, did you just keep knocking on, keep ringing Steve Chu? Or how did you, how did you do it? I think we put together like a cool creative concept i mean we had we had good clothes i guess yeah. like without dissing what rod and gun was doing a lot of the dress was suits and rod and gun wasn't really known for suits and i have to say barkers was sort of known for suits but not necessarily great suits but um yeah. within a year or 18 months of myself joining we stepped up our suits a lot like we actually started to do a lot better suits and that was a, becoming a really big part of our business so i think the off the just purely the product offering of we had fantastic suits which was important for the all blacks we had fantastic pea coats yeah. like the jackets this is in the mid to late 2000s i look at the jackets now and they're so when i say so cool it's in a humble way not an arrogant way but they're very cool very timeless you'd yeah. even wear them now so these jackets we were offering these 100 wool jackets they were really cool and really nice and actually really good quality so i think it was just purely that our clothes actually appealed to the all blacks and it proved out proved to be a massive coup at the time we didn't have to pay all that much money obviously times have changed but it was a very good deal so thanks all blacks thanks steve Chu. Yeah. but second the beauty of the barkers deal with all with the all blacks which was again one of the main reasons i wanted to do it was twofold first of all for mass market kiwi man the average man is nothing more powerful than the all blacks yeah. so barkers dressing the all blacks was just like really really powerful because like oh my goodness barkers dressed the all blacks okay that's incredibly cool but secondly, related to that, we got to use every year three All Blacks as our models. So we got to use, you know, Sonny Bill Williams, you know, Ma Nonu, you know, Dan Carter. We had All Blacks modeling our clothes, which again, totally added to our cred and opened us up to mass market New Zealand and people aspired to wear Barkers. It's been a real massive underpin of why Barkers is successful today because of the fact we won the All Blacks back in, in the mid to late 2000s. So leaving leaving an iconic New Zealand brand, a Kiwi brand like like Barkers, and, and working with the All Blacks to go out on your own. What was the what was the motivation behind that? I've been at Barkers for four or five years, running the business. As I say had lots of stuff ups, you know, a few wins along the way, learnt some good lessons. There was a few reasons for leaving. One is I probably got to the point where I probably had done as much as I could do for Barkers. So it was probably a good time for someone else to come in. I still kept my shares for a few more years and ultimately exited. But the other reasons were that I always had wanted to help. As I say, when I left Deloitte, it was because I wanted to just help one company to be successful. With Barkers, ultimately, as I say, despite the ups and downs, you know, we ultimately obviously became successful. But by then, I'd, I'd sort of got to the stage where, okay, I've done it with Barkers. I'd actually like to be able to help hundreds of companies or thousands of companies be successful rather than just one. Mm-hmm. I was getting a lot of people coming to me wanting mentoring. I was getting a lot of people wanting me to be like a guest speaker at a conference. But but what actually underpinned that as well was we had a culture, as I said, when I joined at Barkers, which was pretty average, okay? People turned up to work purely to earn money. Really, I'm not, not, of course, there were people massively engaged, but the average stereotypical Barker's employee wasn't really that passionate, okay? At Flight Centre, we were known as being a really great workplace. At the time, there was the JRA Best Workplace Competition, and Flight Centre consistently won the best 
large workplace in New Zealand, and it also won a lot of worldwide workplace competitions. Now, the culture at Flight Centre is not for everybody. Some people hate it, but if you fit it into the culture, it was a great place to work. So one of my drivers at Barker's was to actually become a great culture and ultimately a great workplace. And I remember the first thing I did was I, I launched our core values. We didn't have any core values. I did some written core values, launched them after about six months. After 18 months, 12 months after I launched the core values, I was getting a little bit despondent because I thought not much is changing culturally. Like, what's the story? But then the next year after that, things changed dramatically. I kept on the core values. And that meant that people, you know, arguably had more passion, enjoyed their job more. When you do that, they sell more. And ultimately, um, in 2009, um, three or four years after I joined Barker's, we actually won the JRA Best Workplace in New Zealand for a medium-sized workplace, which was, I think, 200-plus employees. Because we had just won the Best Workplace in New Zealand, again, a bit like at Flight Centre with our corporate travel division, I looked good because my salespeople were good because my team was good. Yeah. Because I was managing director of Barkers, people thought that I was like a legend at culture and leadership when maybe I was okay, but actually I wasn't probably as good as it, as it looked like. So I thought, far out, I need to play on this perception. If I'm ever going to jump out and go on my own, now's the time to do it because I was known as actually like being really good at this thing. And, and it was great because I was obviously relatively good at numbers being a, you know, not too bad CFO. Yeah. I'd been an MD and run some big teams of a few hundred people. So I could probably, you know, have, I had some business skills. People were looking at me like, man, you must know what you're doing, which was obviously only half the truth. Um, but I thought, okay, I'm just going to play on that. So I jumped out and, you know, over the next year or so towards the end of 2010 and set up my own business, business changing. And it was actually, I'm not going to say it was a roaring success from day one, but it was pretty successful from like month two or month three, purely because the perception was that I knew what I was doing, which as I say, was honestly only half the truth. I've made it up and learned along the way. Yeah. But so as I say, purely just, it was just really good timing to do my own thing for all those reasons. I, I did your workshop last year and, and I was struck by the number of kind of different industries represented at the workshop. I think there was a logistics company, a jewellery company, there was a, uh, a pub and restaurant business, there was a hotel business. It was just across the range. And I was really struck by your ability to diagnose what was right and what was wrong uh, with those individual businesses like really, really quickly. Was that down to, is that down to like 10 or 11 years of experience working with so many different, you know, companies in so many different industries? Or is it because the fundamentals are essentially the same, Zach? It's a very good question, Robert. Um, at first, I would have, when I, when I say at first, probably when I first started my consulting, coaching, advisory mm -hmm. type business, I mean, I did work across industries, but I probably at the time I specialized in retail. I think I probably specialized in travel. But actually, what I was best at was service industry as well. 80 to 85% of business success is the same no matter what industry you're in. It's really simple. Mm -hmm. And so I know that 80 or 85%, you know, quite well after having done what I've done now for like 10 plus years. Yeah. And yes, there's 10 or 15% industry specifics. But what I find there is that the actual, often the owner or the management team, they're really good at the industry specifics. They're just not so good at the general business stuff. So where I'm able to excel and add value is I know the general business stuff. And I, I'm not actually really, almost like I said, I was a seven, seven out of 10 at sport at school. Like I was pretty dependable. 
well, at business, hope I'm better than a seven out of 10, let's say that. But what I'm saying is I'm not brilliant at any specific thing, but I'm quite good at most things. Yeah. So I'm able to help across the 85%. I'm probably actually not too bad at 80% of it, you know, relatively good. And I can cover so many aspects from culture to customer experience, to finance, to innovation, to strategy, to, you know, money, finance, you know, like a lot of things. And as I say, you know, I mean, I could give you the fundamentals, but literally 80, 85% is all yeah. the same. And I think I've only got... I've only learned more and more because I'm so lucky. I get paid, obviously, by my clients, but I learn from my clients. So I'm almost like paid to learn as well. Yeah. And uh, just I'm I'm in a hugely massive learning environment every single day. Yeah. That I just love. I guess you know I just love learning. That's that's probably my main one of my main drivers is learning and cool. then being able to le- add what you learn from um, learning to other people so you add value to them as well. Very good. What's the most unusual or out there business you've worked with, would you say, Zach? Can you, any, any that's bring I, to mind? I, I turned one down. I did get approached by a brothel. Turned them down. I, did, I thought, no, that's probably not what I'd like to do. So what I really remember is the companies that I work with that have gone on to be ultimately really, really successful. For a long time, I would focus on the Deloitte Fast 50, and it used to be a major driver. And I'm not so focused on that now, but I for a long time, because that gave me credibility. So so over the last, let's say, eight or nine years, I've had approximately 40 of my clients make the Deloitte Fast 50, which is the most in New Zealand by a long way. It's you know, more than Deloitte's have, it's more than the Ice House have, it's more than PwC have or whatever. Yeah. So so I you know, like a lot of those companies have grown fast and they've actually done really well. I think some of my favorite ones that I might mention would be innocent packaging. Um, we have opened up in the UK. We're called Decent Packaging. That's that's very successful. Yeah. I've got some really favorite fashion clients I work with, like Juliet Hogan, um, Koto Clothing, um, which was Deloitte Fast 50 three years in a row, um, Career Academy, which is um, online learning. We were Deloitte Fast 50 two or three years in a row, done really well. Um, Giftbox Boutique is, um, a, is a great business I work with these days. I've been with them for two, maybe three or four years. One of the turning points in our business, Robert, and I think every business can learn with, from this, is you know how do you scale? So for a long time, as I said, my business business changing. We started off pretty successfully, pretty quickly, but very quickly got to a plateau because I only had so many hours I could work. Sure. And yes, I could put my hourly rate up and make more money, whatever. And yes, I could try and get some other people to help out, and I did. But it's very hard with business coaching to. It's quite hard to find good business coaches. Like, hey, there's plenty out there, but it's quite hard to find them, and they don't really want to work with you because they've got their own business. Yeah. So I. I didn't really scale the coaching side of things. But my wife, we run these business retreats overseas, well, pre-COVID, called Nurture Change, Nurture Her, Nurture 360. We have traditionally about, each retreat's got 200 people coming to Fiji or Hawaii for five days. It's pretty cool. It's like fantastic. We've had thousands of people attend them. And after Nurture Change 2016, which is the New Zealand version, but my wife, Sip, who's, as I say, Sip's, Sip's, I have to say, Sip's been the major driver of my business success the last five or six years. I think we've been together about eight or nine years now. First couple of years, she wasn't so involved, but she's got very involved. And in 2016, Robert, she said to me after Nurture Change, she said, hey, Zach, you know how you run those great strategy sessions you know, for boards of directors and executives and management teams? She said, why can't you run them for 10 companies at once? And I was like, it's impossible. How the hell do I run a great workshop with 10 companies in the room at the same time? I said, I don't know, I've got no idea. But like a good wife, good partner, she kept on, she kept at me. And after two weeks, I said, okay, I'll look into it, thinking she'd forget about the idea, which she didn't because she's like a dog with a bone. (laughs) But a few months later, I took a week off over the Christmas holidays and I wrote my two-day business planning workshop 
and it was it's business planning and strategy workshop, which you did last year, Robert. Yeah. And since that day, we did the first one in January 2017. You know, no exaggeration. We've had over 750 companies come through that workshop wow. in many many cities across New Zealand and even in Australia. Yeah. And it's been a game changer because we've been able to scale our state uh, scale our business. So that was, as I say, business model wise me getting into workshops it's called one to many so rather than just one to one it's called one to many yeah. and from my business perspective thanks to my wife Sip pushing me so much she's been a fantastic driver of me for years and and pretty much every good thing I do is actually Sip's idea it's not my idea I have to, I have to tell the truth <laughs> the great thing is everyone walks away with a business plan which is the great thing because when you've got a business plan it brings accountability it brings clarity yeah. And I guess, you know, another lesson there, Robert, for our for our business scaling is to kind of be a little bit niche. So as I said earlier, while I might be a generalist and going to cover 80, 85% of things relatively, not too badly, we have niched into a few areas. And this whole strategy and planning thing has been a major move for us that's had fantastic ramifications, positive impact on the business. It was a real game changer. And a lot of fun. I was going to, I was going to ask you what's been the most important decision of your life. That's probably up there, maybe uh, along with um, deciding to study accountancy way back in the day. Yeah, I think I've had a few. Yeah, doing accounting was good, and mm -hmm. and and I think the other one was realizing that I didn't want to be like an accountant at a chartered accounting firm. As I say, learning at Deloitte said I didn't want to just work on twenty eight of those kind of clients which I then feel like a hypocrite because today I work on hundreds of clients which is <laughs> yeah right but because let's say I've got 80 or 90 regular clients like regular retainer clients I feel like I'm the boss of all those companies and when I say boss I don't mean the day-to-day -day boss sure but I'm the boss of the business owner yeah and the business success comes down to how the business owner runs it so I feel that I've got thousands of people in my greater team and by me mentoring and holding business owners accountable they're, they're, they're the best person that they can be themselves to run their company in the best way that's going to make their company successful. My job is to make them the best person they can for their particular company. So it's weird. I've gone from at Deloitte's wanting to leave so I couldn't sink my teeth into any client. But now I feel so dedicated to my regular clients that I love the fact, like today I've seen three clients and I can just sort of, I think I was not too bad at studying because I could just memorize things and then forget about it the next day. Yeah. And I don't but I'm able to literally have three really decent client meetings and arguably have a great conversation, add some value, hold them accountable. And I can, you know, an hour later go to, or an hour later go to another one. So I've, I've sort of, one of my benefits is, yeah, having a compartmentalized, I guess, memory or ability to focus. So I just love the fact that I have a really large, a, a really large network of people I'm working with. It keeps things interesting. I'm going to finish by asking you, what are you excited about? I do work very hard. I work a little bit less. I would just like to have a little bit more time off. Sip and I, a few months ago, we took up golf. And um, I love golf. And um, I love Lydia Ko. She's pretty much my favorite sports person. So um, I want to play a bit more golf, um, you know, have a few more holidays. So I think I, the other thing that's exciting to me, honestly, is just that all my clients I work with, they're very much a cultural fit with me. To work with me, you've got to get on with me. And not everyone likes me. But not, not everyone likes how I work. And that's totally their prerogative. But everyone I work with, kind of, like most, a lot of my clients I've had for like 10 years, literally been working together forever. But I just get excited. That's what excites me. It's like, man, some of my, almost all of my clients, if not, if not everyone, they're just genuinely fantastic people. What drives me is my clients being successful. And also, um, you know, watching my kids grow up. Um, my kids are now, as I say, when, the, when their mum passed away, they were five, six, and 12. Now they're 
20, 22 and 27, 28. And Sip's got two kids as well, 20 and 21. Yep. And um, it just, it's, I guess it's another phase of life. You know, one day I guess I'll be a grandparent. So, yes. Very good. Listen, it's been lovely to chat with you, Zach. I really, really appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Awesome. Okay. Hey, nice chatting, Robert. Thank you for having me on. And um, look forward to seeing who else you talk to next. Very, Take very, care. All the best. Hey, thanks so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, please subscribe and tell your friends. And if you've got time, I'd really appreciate it if you could leave a rating and review on whatever podcasting platform you use. Finally, if you want to learn more about how to tell your own origin story, visit my website, storybud.co. That's S-T-O-R-Y-B-U-D dot co, storybud.co. Thanks again and see you next time.